Why does it make a difference? Well, anyway, listen. Uh, don't ask that question, don't worry. We can talk about that afterwards. So we don't fall over <laughs> sideways. Uh, hey, listen, uh, just avoid thudding this. Okay. And um, rubbing that. I'll maybe put your cup on the felt, as it were, rather yeah, than the... There's so many rules, rules, aren't there? It's all rules here. I like it. <laughs> but I think the thing is, you know, when you, there's a really nice sound here, so it's all very velvety, and if halfway through you go thwack, there's a spoon <laughs> or a sort of... People go, just don't do that to my head. It's exactly. just thoughtless. Okay. Yeah. Should we kick Let's off? roll. Hey, uh, welcome. We are physically, in person, in presence, in the studio. Wow. Can't believe it. I second know. second time in two years. I, I, it's incredible. Can't remember anyway, it's time. brilliant. Now, I'm Ian. Who are you? I'm Jamie. Right, Jamie, but enough about us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that must make me Greg. <laughs> it does make you Greg. Greg, tell everyone who you are. Uh, so hello, everyone. My name's Greg. I'm the Area E-Commerce Director for Europe for Reckit. So a couple of things there. You say Area E-Commerce Director... They said Europe, but your LinkedIn says UKAWASP, the longest acronym I've ever heard for Europe. <laughs> it's FMCG. We love acronyms, don't so, we? So um, tell us what the acronym is, first of all. It's just a regional split on how we divide our business. So we have Europe, so mainland Europe, the UK, but also Turkey, Australia, New Zealand, and Russia. And all of them have different, if you like, acronyms that go around. So Fine. yeah, it's Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Wow. wow. We've changed okay. the geography of the world in one year. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> and um, here at e-commerce, what does that mean? Yes. Yeah, so uh, if you look at the way we organize ourselves, I work in what we call the Be Big channel, which is our relationship with retailers in known platforms that are scalable. So things like Amazon, Tesco.com, e-pharmacists like Boots. And what we have are teams in each market. So a head of e-commerce in UK, in France, etc. And they run... Uh, integrated into the market and my team are the area team that are there to help them outperform so we do all the best practice all the training all the education but all the things that you would imagine around transformation as well mm. so how do we change our business model how do we transform it with the senior leaders so it's if you like a translator for our markets on e-commerce mm. um, in that bit so that's roughly what i do execution okay. and transformation and then the last one you said wreck it old people will remember not being able to type or pronounce record Benkiza. I think we've had an RB along the way. So so just tell everyone who you are, what you're currently called, <laughs> and just a, a thumbnail about uh, about the business. So we are Reckitt, named after our founder, Isaac Reckitt. That's hard to say, isn't it? it. <laughs> so traditionally in this country known as Reckitt and Coleman, because we used to have a mustard family as well, but all of that's uh, oh. long behind us. And then we merged with the Benkiza family in 1999, which brought a lot of our healthcare brands across. And now we've gone back to being Reckitt. This sounds like one of those dating games where the mustard family meets the... It's, it's a little bit like Cluedo, yes, I would say that. But no, it's really nice because we've got this like very, very long heritage, especially in the UK, mm. um, and Reckitt's really where it started. And then Reckitt's a consumer goods company, so it exists in the FMCG industry. And our purpose, if you like, is to protect, heal and nurture in a relentless pursuit of a cleaner, healthier world. And so if oh I... Oh, did you just make that up? No, no, it's it's our mission. It's what we do every day. <laughs> but give us the products, though, because I think yeah, that sure. will bring it, it to It makes life. it way easier because yeah, yeah. we, we, we live by our brands, not by our name. And we've always been like that, if you like. So we have three business units. We have a hygiene business unit, which is products like finished dishwasher tablets or vanished stain remover, mm -hmm. Airwick. We have a nutrition 
business unit, which is products like Enthamil, which is the largest baby formula, which is predominantly in the US and mm. Latin America. And then the division I work in, which is healthcare. So these are products that you'll use every day, like Nurofen, Lemsip, Strepsils, Jurex, Dettol. So that's the bit I work in. So um, Dettol has kind of come to the fore over the pandemic. So that's a, that must have helped sales. It was, for, I think for everyone, right, a really tumultuous ride. And I actually joined the role I'm doing now. I came back from America. I'd lived in America. And I came back to the UK in January 2020. And obviously it all kicked off in March. And I think you really realise at that point the power of your brands. And you've got this brand like Dettol, which is the number one, if you like, frontline brand. And I was saying earlier to Jamie, it took e-commerce from being important to mission critical because when you look at the access to the products there was nothing available like there was nothing in the stores and then suddenly everyone's trying to get this product and mm. e-commerce was the place you could get it alongside that there was this huge responsibility we had around how do we ensure that healthcare practitioners get it first it's not in stores you need to get it to them first how do you get it to all these different people and everyone wants to sell it so it's gone from being this product that exists on Tesco or Amazon to now being in every single store in the country. Mm. So yeah, it was quite quite the ride. I'm really proud of everything we've done. And you can kind of see the footprints everywhere. If you've taken the tube this morning up here, you'll see Dettol. You'll, you'll see all the you'll see it at the uh, Euros final, like the mm. partnerships we're doing with Grassroots uh, FA, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it does show the power of brand as well, because hugely. you know, when you go on the tube, it's you know a great London institution in partnership with a global brand, I think Final takes on that hand cleanser because it's Dettol. And then you go somewhere and they've got a no-brand horse rub alcohol. And you think, honestly, you know, as a brand person, I expect a better brand of <laughs> cleanser. So it is interesting just how those uh, shorthands for quality and so on have, have found a new life. It's a really interesting one because we talked earlier about obviously Isaac Reckitt, like 180 years ago, founded the business. But you've built all this equity over decades. And sometimes in e-com, you feel like because of all the insurgent brands that come along and all this like new news, if you like, and these products that you learn loads from, but you kind of forget the power. But when things really go, if you like, to that sort of emergency level... People go back to what they trust. Mm. And our job there was to ensure that kind of we were there. And it's just amazing watching it. And I feel, if you like, you feel very privileged being in a place like Wreck-It. Because even brands like Jurex, which have followed me through my career, it's a pleasure to work on. Like People trust it. They, you know, they're referring to it as the brand versus like the category. And then if someone's ill, you know, you're straight on to things like Lemsip and Strepsils and you go to what you know first. And it's our job to keep that equity and pass it on to the next generation, you know. Mm. You know, like keep it keep it going and pass the equity and modernise it and continue to be relevant and, and do that. But you really realise that point. And I know this won't be unique to Wreck-It. It's the same for Procter, same for Unilever. You have these brands where they are your greatest asset, that mm. and the people. That's all you really have. So they're the two things that we focus on, like, relentlessly, if you like. Now, I've... I've been a terrible interviewer on this uh, again, again, which is we've kind of gone into the middle of something without uh, setting the stage. So uh, I apologise to our listener over this. So we started off uh, asking about you and then got distracted by the brands. But just tell us how you ended up at Reckitt. So, you know, where, where did Greg come from before uh, this lovely role with brands? It's been a fun journey. I'll, I'll try and kind of tie it together quickly. So I actually started in FMCG after a brief agency career in Jordans and Rivita. So this was Jordan cereals, you know, mm -hmm. granola. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, yeah. You probably know. Love those. Oh, it's amazing. I still eat it. Yeah, Harvest Crunch. 
And that was when Bill Jordan used to run the business as well. So it was really nice because it, you had a founder. So it was actually this entrepreneur. But didn't you actually have a mill somewhere yeah, in the countryside? Still has the mill. mill. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and if you watch Countryside, that's his property. So And it, it still gives 10% of all its all of its farmland back to wildlife, things that were miles ahead of where it is now, which is why the brand's a lot more successful now because it was doing the right thing a long time before you were seen as having to do it. But I started there and I worked in the sales team, so dealing with like retailers like Tesco and dealing with Sainsbury's. But not technologies. You didn't emerge no, 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 you no, know, no, with I, a Casio calculator and uh, <laughs> you know some lines of code that, that go straight in. <laughs> Jesus, no, I still had one of those Casio watches that had a calculator <laughs> on school maybe. Dick but, Casey, no. yeah. but the one thing we all had in common and I think probably my generation was we entered doing sales and commercial roles or marketing roles. And then because you're the youngest person in the building, you get given e-com. And e-com is this tiny little thing and it's a cardo. So you learn a cardo and they give you that to kind of, if you like, with your uh, stabilizers on before you go up to Tesco. Then we moved on to Rivita. And- Sorry, when you say learn a cardo, is this because you were at the wrong end of someone's EDI system and <laughs> shoveling in product data and availability and pallets? I mean, what do you mean learn a cardo? So roughly speaking in FMCG, the size of the retailer or brand that you work on, so that whether you work on a brand as a brand manager or you work with Tesco as a national account manager, the size of it tends to dictate the experience that you need because of the scale. And because Ocado what was it, 15 years ago, was so small and so different, it made sense to give it to the most junior person because you could practice negotiations, you could work on things, and that would you'd then step up into these like lofty heights of calling on Morrisons or Booths or Waitrose, and that's kind of traditionally how it went. But the other thing that happened with my generation was we all got given the econ bits. So outside of that, um, Ocado, I also got given their direct-to-consumer business for Rivita. So I set up the first of a store, which was... <laughs> I was joking with Jamie earlier, which was Rivita tin business. So these were merchandise for Rivita sold primarily to um, mums and grandmas over the age of 55 who loved Rivita merchandise, <laughs> loved it. So we were selling like... That is, that is a pretty niche category. I know. No, 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 no. My, my, my family had them, tins. I remember the tin. I think you're over-communicating here, Jamie. Well, That's possibly. a cry for help, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we, we were we were selling like two thousand a month ten years ago, but uh, fifteen years ago. Wow. So it worked very well. But what it allowed me to do was learn if you're like a direct to consumer platform. Before it was even called direct to consumer, it was just this annoying bit of business that you give to a junior guy. <laughs> and through that, I um, ended up getting a real bug for this. I was really intrigued and. In that year or the last year I was there, um, I joined to do a master's. So I did a master's in internet retailing, as you know well, Ian. Oh, I guess that's where, where uh, we met. Uh, although other masters are available, I should say. Uh, well, and it's also not career limiting. We're about to find <laughs> exactly. out. Exactly. So Somehow we're still here. So that was, uh, that was um, a long time ago now. But I did that, and that really was the first time I would, quote, unplug from the matrix. You start to see the world differently, and you got to meet all these different diverse people. And I just got a bug for it. And that that bug for it and that curiosity led me in 2012 to Amazon. Mm. So I joined Amazon as a vendor manager. So I'm going to just pause there because um, when you're hiring people, one of the things I find hardest to hire, uh, other than researchers and editors, is salespeople. Because people don't like picking up the phone. They don't like doing the work beforehand. It's quite difficult putting yourself out there. So you seem to have come from an area that is highly prized and difficult with a good career path, but then you swapped into this digital domain. Did you have any tools or skills that said, oh, I already know this, or were you learning? And so just describe what that felt like going from your bright young thing on this career path to 
stepping into digital? On reflection, I probably had two things. I firstly had really good advice from like mentors, so like the sales director at Jordan's Rivita, who I'm still close with, who basically convinced me to think long term. So even at my early 20s, he was like, what are you going to need to do when you're, you know, in your mid to late 30s? What's going to be important? What, where do you need to learn? And that helped give me a confidence that, to follow the curiosity. He also taught me a really important lesson, um, him and an, another mentor I had around enjoying things. So what do you actually enjoy doing? Like, I realized that working with traditional retailers in store was a, a honed, brilliant skill we have that's been built over 60 years. So you're eking a basis point every year and it's very, very process driven. And these are things that aren't naturally me. I'm curious, I like going, I like being fast at things. So if you look at the natural style I had, it kind of suited new areas because I'm just interested in the future, if you like, in mm. that sense. So that was point one. The second, to be really, really blunt, was deluded self-confidence. I just, I just oh, had. I love that. <laughs> it was that deluded, and that yeah. Yeah. hopefully, hopefully, my partner Zoe has kicked that out of me now. But um, <laughs> it's, it was at a point where I was just like, this is the right thing to do, and people were saying to me, 10, 12 years ago, why are you going to Amazon? you could be working on Tesco by now. You could be at a head of sales for one of these companies. I was like, I have to go and see it from the inside. It's too interesting. And in my interview loop, because one of the mystiques of Amazon is the interview loop, you know, you know, it's a hundred people going for one role, only 4% get in. And then you meet people like Chris Pode, who you know well, and you're just like, what is happening? This is like, I've never heard people speak in this way. And it's just, this is so interesting. I don't think I even looked properly at my offer letter. They gave me an offer letter. I signed it and credit to Jordan's Rivita. They were amazing and off I went. And I joined this totally different business in at the time in Slough. So this was when frugality was really a thing at Amazon. Oh, yeah. You know, holes in the wall. You know, you have to bring in your own computer. Like, you know, it, it was, if you like, a, a different stage of their progression, even though they still had some scale in the UK, it was certainly nowhere near. And that's the first environment I've been in since probably like some of the rugby teams I've been in where I was at the bottom mm. skill wise. Yeah. So all of that got kicked out of me because suddenly I wasn't the most intelligent person in the room or the fastest. And you're just meeting people from different backgrounds. And that's one of the beauties of Amazon. Although the culturally it can feel sometimes like not very human because of it, the nature of it, they have some of the best talent in the world. Mm. So suddenly I was learning, I was doing the masters. So I'm at business school, I'm doing this, which really helped. And had an amazing two years of learning, but worked out pretty quickly that culturally it wasn't the right place for me because I was people centric and um, I actually missed being in FMCG. So that kind of led me, if you like, through those two years. And at the end of that, I found Reckit. And that was, what, seven and a half years ago. So I've been there ever since. And Reckit, like Procter, like Unilever, were all on a hiring spree to find people that understood Amazon that could come in and set up the first ever e-commerce teams. Hmm. So I, but again, there's still from an FMCG world, which is how can I shovel more stuff into the sales channel? Yeah. Not that I'm disrespecting that, but it, it wasn't as if we want to become digital. It was, let's feed this other fire. Yeah. So if, again, if you're a student of the history of FMCG, will tell you that the real model that's now been disrupted hugely is this model of retailer power and brand power deciding what consumers see mm. and it's not that that's wrong it was just the environment we were in and it was an in-store environment so we create everything a consumer sees to the point of like the nth degree and then what you do is the retailer backs you buys the product from you that frees up enough capital for you to put it on tv or an outdoor poster 
and then you sell and eight out of 10 innovations don't work and you start that process again. You keep building it and it's category management, if you like. That was the mm. buzzword in the 80s, 90s and early 90s. I love category management. It's great. It is great. And it works for in-store. It's really, really important. But then what started to happen was these insurgent retailers started to come in with a different model and they were all consumer centric. Mm. So the biggest shock that FMCG had from my perspective or my, my opinion was that you couldn't control a search algorithm and everyone was really, really pissed about it. Like, why can I not be top mm. of household cleaners with Dettol? I am the top. I, I am the top. I am the top. No, you're not. <laughs> like yeah. this, this insurgent brand that's thought way more about consumers and then you're starting to compete with people whose only livelihood is Amazon. So you're not the best at it. And that was effectively my, me and many of my peers that exist in the industry's job to take FMCG on that journey, especially in an industry which the things like fresh food and frozen are still very far behind. I think we're kind of lucky with Reckitt because we have sexual well-being. So it's a huge category online, you know, like it's already the number one, if you like, channel or products like Dettol, which massively overtrade. But if you look at medicine, which we can touch on later, it's still very, very small. So of course, because it was small and coming very slowly, no one really knew how to react it. And that's effectively why mm. Reckitt brought me in. And I spent the first two years, and I say a team, I was head of e-commerce, and I was a team of one. Excellent. <laughs> in at the least, basement. At least the <laughs> annual appraisal is a rapid process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 360. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And do the rest of it. So we did that. And then interestingly, after maybe two years of doing that, um, they asked me to go and learn the business and step out of e-com. And um, partly there was that for my learning and education, but also because there was no career path. That was it. So let's pause there. You said a while ago how you didn't like the the process, the straitjacket, the fighting for that incremental thing. I'm pretty sure, though, that you didn't say that on your application when you went to wreck it. You didn't say, look, I'm unstructured, free-thinking hippie. You probably said... I've had the Amazon training and, you know, now I'm Mr. Process and Mr. Scalability. How have you managed to combine that sort of, you know, freer approach with what by now is a bigger enterprise process? Is is there still a conflict inside you, Greg? Or is this uh, so that you found a zen of creativity with scalability and all the other illities? That's a question, isn't it? Great question. So I know who's listening. <laughs> Take your time, think about it. <laughs> so my opinion, not records, but I think the leaders that are succeeding in the market are able to balance two things, the scale of winning like today and the balance of growth and winning tomorrow. And those two things are paradoxical. So one of them, winning today, is doing fewer, bigger, better. And the other one, which is winning tomorrow, is placing your bets everywhere and seeing what sticks. And it's about having not only the agility to think that way, but structure your teams in a certain way. And what's ironic about me saying that I don't like structure and process is Amazon's so big now that it requires structure and process. So when you're thinking about building your team and you're building out like who you need, you need people with good negotiation skills. You need people that have got some of these, if you like, historical great assets that we've built over time. And then you also need the people that don't think in this, if you like, boxed in way who don't necessarily come from our industry. So you have to take bets on people coming in from places like Google or coming from startups. And if you actually look at where most of our talent migrates to and from in e-com, we don't tend to see people leaving to other FMCG businesses. They go to startups where you've got equity and they're going to kind of learn this new way of working. And this generation, and again, I keep going back to the generation point because I think it was just, as I was reflecting before I came on here, part of like the age group I was in, we've done both. So... 
because we grew up in one and then became the other, we're able to translate that. Mm-hmm. And one of the beauties about the future is no one has a competitive advantage. So there's no one sat in Reckit with 30 years experience of online. It, it doesn't exist. And then on the, on the same hand, the skills that you need to succeed in the future, we already have. You just have to find a way of translating them. So you have to balance um, scale and growth, which is extremely mm-hmm. difficult. And as long as you're aware of that and have what we would call a growth mindset and you're open to that, then the question is what do you have to change and what do you have to disrupt? And Procter and Gamble call it constructive disruption I and mean, we call it positive disruption. But the idea is that you can't <laughs> succeed with consumers by yeah. doing it the way we did because you don't have the same power anymore. You just don't. You have to accept it. And I've always been whether it's the hippie in me or whether liberal in me, I've always been very comfortable with the idea of consumers having that power because if you get that, then everything is becomes easy. And but you are, despite this very laid-back approach, you are also striving to get that dominance and to win. So as you look at um, the direct-to-consumer market, you know, you're within a corporate environment, therefore you will have a limitation whether it's staff, time, resources, technology, there's always one thing you're trying to optimise against. But meanwhile, there are a billion people who are solely focused on doing their thing 24 hours a day and for whom they might say, well, look, if I pocket 50 grand a year from doing this on Amazon, I've made my living, I'm a happy man. Whereas you're thinking, I'm not, it's not, there's no ROI there for me, I won't do that. So how do you balance the reality of making decisions today where you focus when you're actually fighting a massive army of people who value their time very lowly, are happy with low ROI, but in aggregate are a massive competitor. What do you actually do to maintain your position in your categories? So the first acceptance I think you need to go through and we go through is if you listen to the consumer feedback and you look at how consumers react with your brands, whether it's ratings and reviews or content or different studies you do, even search relevance, you you accept, first of all, how do people actually search online? And the big bit that we realized, and it was the big unlock for us at Reckit, was the typical question you would get asked is, why doesn't e-com just happen? We've got these brand plans, we've, you know, we've got all these operating models, why doesn't it just happen? Mm-hmm. And you realize that actually the same consumer, because they don't think of channels, behaves differently in different environments. And you have to firstly respect that, that it's not a store. And why would you expect to have the same market segment share when you're competing against 7,000 ASINs or SKUs versus in-store where there's only 300 of you and you don't have that same power? Mm -hmm. So immediately you have to rebalance what success looks like. And you can go back to all the old textbooks. If you go back to being a student around Kodak, right? Kodak had digital film. It was at half a gross margin. They decided not to do it. Blockbuster, same, you know, all these sorts of things with there. So it's the same sort of dichotomy that we've got that we're trying to balance. But it's having the, firstly, the awareness of that and the acceptance. And the acceptance of that is why I enjoy working at Reckitt so much, because they accept that. They accept that the consumer will decide. They accept that that means the metrics may need to be different. And even the operating model needs to be different. Mm. And if you look at like an Amazon um, business review, we open the laptop and look at Vendor Central and our business review starts from there versus maybe if I was prepping in my old role in Tesco, I do a document once a year. It's a planned out strategy. I lock my plan for three years and I sit back and I do that. And it takes different skills. It's not harder. It's not easier. It's just a different Mm. set of skills. That education process internally 
to try and answer your question and come back to it is the most important bit. And if I had to summarize, 95% of the challenge is internal, not external. The consumer is very clear on what they want. Mm. We just need to adapt to that logic versus so believing. Believe how do you manage that? Because it doesn't sound like it's one or another. It sounds like you're doing one while your existing colleagues are doing another, but you're both selling the same brand, different channels, different timescales, different approaches, etc. So how do you have those conversations internally where one person is saying, oh, I've just increased my shelf space and prominence on aisle seven at Tesco nationally and be this amount of money. And you're saying, oh, I've just got a, a twin pack that I can send people for under 10 quid in recycled packaging, yay. So to just talk me through maybe you know your weekly meeting with your other brand colleagues or how it works between the D to C and the retail channel team. So it starts... And we're beyond this now, but it starts with, is it incremental? It's dilutive. All these questions that assume that you have this fixed environment where moving A to B yeah. will we'll lose it, right? When what we say is to create the incrementality and to create growth for record, which is the only reason we exist, to create growth for record and delight our consumers. That's the only reason that we need to move in these areas. And you do that by understanding a different behavior. So to give you a very concrete example, if I walk into a store and a consumer in a store will spend no more now than two pounds, maybe a push three pounds on cleaning wipes. Just will not happen because of the likes of TJ Morris, Audi, Lidl, et cetera, everyone competing. So great brands sold at that price. Yet online, the best selling cleaning wipe on Amazon UK as of today is Dettol and it's 756 wipes at the sole discretion of a retailer selling roughly, let's say at 20 pounds at their sole discretion. Mm. So there you go, same consumer and that's locked out. I found myself the other day buying 54 Andrex in a household of three people, because that's what Andrex do online. Great price, hide it behind a bath, and suddenly we're a household of three people buying six months' worth of, if you like, toilet tissue up front. But isn't that the modern way, though? I mean, it I'm, is, I'm and to extrapolate. And from... that's where the incrementality comes from, because it's all interconnected. If you imagine that for Andrex, that means that every Sainsbury shop I still do, because I still go to the supermarket, I still stock shelves, I still do all that sort of stuff, you know, pushing pushing finish to the front and making sure it's merchandise. <laughs> um, I do all of that, and but I'm not buying toilet paper anymore. And I think if you now look at a supermarket, the majority of the supermarket shop I now do is fresh food and bits in uh, tinned and grocery and frozen and potentially alcohol, but I don't even set foot anymore in the household. Mm. I don't have to. So the incrementality come in, comes from understanding that behavior and then working together. And that working together, a lot of people think it's all about consensus and agreeing. And I don't think it is. I think it's about being able to get the right leaders in a room and agree what has mm. to change. And then there should be healthy friction. In the same way that if we stepped on the rugby pitch tomorrow, I wouldn't imagine forwards and backs to agree on much. But you need really? to decide... <laughs> I got it into rugby, I told you I would. <laughs> what you do is you have to decide what the strategy is to win that game. And it's the same for CPG. And sometimes the stores have reopened now. It's incredibly important that we have um, stores that um, are fully stocked. And it's also incredibly important that the in-store team know that if you lose availability online, it's harder to get back because you lose search relevance. It's just a reality. So we put these facts together and that's been years of working together. And we're lucky at Reckitt in the sense that our leaders are very aligned. So our leadership is very aligned. And then my job is to translate that and not make it us v them. It's about making it what's the right thing for Reckitt, joint targets, et cetera, ensuring that. Mm. Then the D to C element of it, um, which is slightly different for us because of our brand portfolio. You don't have lots of people lining up for Sillip Bang, um, unfortunately. 
But you also need to understand that just by doing that, it's never going to be a volume play. But also the way you'd buy Bang would be, oh dear, stain slash problem, which, you know, if you've got teenagers around the place, is going to happen. Then you think, can I get to the supermarket? Is it part of... Does it fit in my life? And if not, you then go to Amazon and see whether it's available on Prime. Before you know it, you've got, you know, a, a semi-industrial pack of 12 litres of Silit Bang, which, you know, sits there. So it is interesting how the, the channel fits in. But I just want to link that back to data because, you know, when uh, the pandemic kicked in last year, there was no debt all to be found anywhere. As soon as you can get it, I went from buying Dettol hand wash approximately never mm. to buying 36 on a pallet, which is now in every bathroom in the house, etc., in the kitchen. But I've still got 24 of them left. So I may never buy within the life, well, within the career of your analytics person. It may be another three years before I buy more. So doesn't that change the metrics in the business? You know, because I'm become a semi bulk less frequent rather than buy it with my pint of milk and strawberries. So the data must be all over the place when you look at different channels, different channel partners, and so on. How how do you even develop a language around the customer that helps you understand that? So those sorts of ups and downs and what we would call annualizations or comps of business. Annualization. We'll use that. We'll take that, yeah. Take that. That's yours now. (laughs) Those sorts of things have been around forever, but they they tended to be things like innovation that didn't work. So let's say you sold in a new Airwick fragrance and it didn't sell out and therefore you have to help the retailer clear it and you have this big, what we would call annualization or comp. The the famous um, dog and celery curry flavor that... uh, you were the only consumer that bought that, but yes, that was that was a good piece of insight. You know? um, but yeah, the classic mold wine and it hasn't sold by December twenty third, so therefore you know you've yeah. got you've got excess stock, etc. And um, so there's probably two ways to unpack this. The first is yes, you do get those situations, but they've been around forever. I think the COVID one was exceptional because I don't think consumers really understood that was panic mode, mm-hmm. and therefore we all assumed probably that people would use hand gel and masks all the time. But actually, if I took a straw poll, maybe on the tube, maybe it's stuck with half the people. The way big conglomerates talk about it, all of them, is they talk about two-year stack. So you start to broaden out like not versus your sales versus 2019 and 2020. And what we've seen is mm. Dettol's penetration increase three times versus 19 before it started. So you get this huge bump, which is ridiculous. You know, you can't you can't keep it in stock. And then you end up with three times as many customers at the end and you have a much bigger brand, which means you have a much bigger environment. And you'll see that with Lifeboy as well. I think Unilever relaunched their brand Lifeboy and was very successful. So those data things are normal and they're just about managing it in a, in a planning cycle. Mm. The data point is interesting because it's many people talk about it's not the it's a lack of data and I firmly believe it's not a lack of data it's the inability of businesses to have the capability to know what to do with data so we've gone from a place where if you're on Excel and can use a VLOOKUP you're king to go into a place where we're now for instance have data science as a discipline in record and I'm on interview loops for data scientists and you're trying to work out what to ask them because no one in your business exists doing this and that's the ability to draw all these data points and put yeah. it into tools whether it's power bi or other 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 ways to do that to diagnose how shoppers interact so if i take jurex a consumer that's on our direct-to-consumer website where we have all the data and we and we have that 
versus Amazon, where I have the data, unique visitors, conversions, glance views, um, average selling price, right down to Tesco, where I've got um, sales out. So I've just got an EPOS number. Mm. And then trying to triangulate that back in a way that makes sense. Mm. But it's really that capability that's needed and someone who can actually manage data into a manageable place. So there's too much data. It's in too many forms. And commercial businesses um, in FMCG never really needed it because before it was just, what do you sell out? You started the journey at, I put it on TV and sales are up 20% in store. Job done. Yeah. And now with Amazon, it's, my you you know my glance views are up twenty seven point eight percent. My conversions up hundred basis points, and I can tell you by the day. I literally by the hour if I needed to, and then online or if you like on our own um, our own platform, um, our owned platforms, I can tell you even more because of the data I've got. And what we try and do is then use that in all our channels, so we don't shy away from this fact that we play in direct to consumer. It's not a scale game; it's a knowledge game. But that knowledge is incredibly important for building mm-hmm. innovation. But when one day be on a, in a store. Maybe some of it just lives online because of the nature of a product for Jurex, maybe like a sex toy. But the innovation we have coming out, which will be in stores like Super Dragon Boots, has come from that data. Uh, you know, it's like, there's this whole cliche about the people in maybe in management positions, senior management positions, may not get this world as much as just because they've been in a, they grew up in a different world, as it were. But is that the case? Because are you breaking down barriers by showing this data and the perspective on the data, whatever channel it may be, it doesn't really matter. Are people getting this and going, well, actually, yes, I can see that glance views are up and that makes sense to me. Or are they just thinking they always, is, is a tendency to go the news or channels. We, we understand that that's how it works. There's a piece that I would probably, again, this is my personal opinion, there's a piece where I think the top of the business is get it because I don't think you can be a CEO or C-suite of any of the companies that Mm. I would view as competitors or people without getting this. Mm. And your people really, uh, your youngest people get it because they grew up with it. Is everyone in the middle? Mm. And the problem with the middle ground is you've, you've basically spent 15, 20 years learning a skill and now you're asking to change. And that skill used to you know, earn you an office, earn you a PA, do all this sorts of stuff. And you honed it. And now that omni-channel, if you like, or this ability of like channels conflicting and consumers spreading their spend everywhere and it becoming consumer-centric is asking people to relearn everything they've learned. And relearning, learning's one thing. Unlearning stuff to then relearn is a totally different thing and it's purely mindset. And that isn't an age thing. It's not a demographic thing. It's just the ability of having a mindset of, am I willing to test every theory I have? So again, if I... Look at that desolate example I gave you. It is true that people will only spend £2.50 in store. It's also true on Amazon. They will spend 20 So both those things have to exist in your head at the same time. <laughs> so Tesco.com, what do you do? Do you do the £20? Do you convince Tesco or do you stick with a £2.50? And all those sorts of ability to balance those two things is how you create incrementality. And do you look at insurgent brands on Amazon as they're tiny or do you look at them as, wow, what they're doing is way better than us, mm. which is something that, again, is a mindset of the ability of like, they, they have learned things that we haven't learned, which historically, because of the barriers to entry in entering a supermarket, was almost impossible. So whether that's, you know, the famous ones like Harry's Razors or, you know, um, mm. you know Ben and Jerry's originally back in the mm. day, but their model started with direct to consumer and then they move into store with a different proposition and suddenly they take, mm. take your lunch if you don't take them seriously. But let's, uh, let's go back to skills because we started this with you being a know-nothing plastic lump of protoplasm that could adapt to digital. You're now looking for people 
with these very specific skills you don't just accidentally pick up, these data scientists. So I've got a, a double-headed question for you. So one is, is there still a role for these plastic people to find? Can you teach yourself this stuff or do you need formal training? And the second one, so you've got a chance to think about it, is what bits of you need to be unlearned and relearned for the next five years of the DTC journey? So firstly, new people, can you just bring in generalists or are we really after hard skills? And secondly, give us an example of maybe where your next skills are coming from. So question one, can you teach anyone? Yes, it's just a mindset. It doesn't require anything. It doesn't require university education or knowledge of Amazon. It, in fact, the more open you are to learning with no bias, almost the easier it is. And as much as it will pain e-commerce professionals to say, the people that aren't close to e-commerce often have the best ideas because they can just see it for what it is, right? When you uh, take yourself away. Yeah. COVID proved that. Globally, we moved over 100 people into e-commerce roles in 21 days. So it's possible. The question is, how do you train them? And there's a difference between learning the intellect of it versus letting them get stuck in and let them, for instance, run a brand like, I don't know, Fiber Gel, which is uh, one of our, um, what we call local heroes on Amazon. Off you go, no fear of failure. Do what you need to do to learn it and get used to, if you like, the operating system. And you can teach anyone. You took back to your Ocado versus Tesco uh, yeah. learning ground, as it were. But it's difficult yeah. to take someone learning when they're running a hundred million pound business yeah. to learning a yeah. forty thousand pound business. <laughs> it's like learning to, you know, I don't know gymnastics or uh, slack wire. Is yeah. slack line is that you take away the fear of dying mm. and then take things away. Yeah. So, so our, it's counterintuitive though because it is. We think from the outside that these brands are rigorous, you know, hundred percent accuracy all the time, and it, you're painting a picture of kind of live fire exercise and training wheels actually quite you know changing my perspective yeah, our, our, lead, our leader Arjun talks a lot about um failure and it it's that fail and it stands for first attempt at learning so the first question you ask you is what have you learned how much have you lost did you learn move on and we sow those seeds and and mm. we did that um to give you an example probably with um on demand so the quick commerce uh, we did that with co-op in two years ago maybe so two years ago and we were doing a thousand pounds a week with delivery. But then you look at it and you go, well, if I can get medicine delivered to my home in 30 minutes from Boots or Co-op, mm. that's a better consumer experience because no one wants to leave a house and even do that 200 minute walk real? to Tesco. Oh, no. And now suddenly, if you saw the size of that now, you'd just be flabbergasted. Tell how you're not going to tell us the numbers. <laughs> I would project, actually, I'll make a, Bold statement for you. I think Uber and delivery will be bigger customers for OTC medicine in the UK than any of the existing people, including Amazon. Ooh. There you go. Interesting. I think um, it will be. You start your post now it will episode. Well, that was our, that was our second <laughs> career, wasn't it? it was being a, an Uber delivery driver. So, well, yeah. Uh, that? Now, that will come through retailers. That will yeah. come through Boots, Co-op. Co-op are definitely in the market leader because mm. they got there first. It will come yeah. through them. So it will be their benefit. So imagine now you've got a store that sells to people and then you've got 25% of the volume going through a, a rider. And then what does that mean for the yeah. brand and et cetera, et cetera. So all we need is that rider to also train as a paramedic and you know the whole thing is going to flip to they're going to be like your local medicine person as well. It's just a state of mind. Anyone can learn nothing. Anyone can learn. We heard it here first. Exactly. <laughs> so what are, you, what, are you, what are you looking to learn next? Unlearn, relearn, add to your skills? So that was, yeah, part of your second question. You, I think the first thing you do in e-com is you realise that because you're talking or living something that um, 
the majority still don't know as well. You're the teacher and you have to quickly become the student again because otherwise all you do is teach all day and you realise how old it becomes. And so uh, over this Black Friday, for instance, you know, I'm just getting schooled by a 21-year-old intern telling me stuff I never knew. And you're like, oh my God. Like, So there's a lot to be said about whether you call it reverse mentoring or just staying on the front line and we do a lot of that. I'm held accountable right down to, you know, like my knowledge of what's happening on Amazon and learning that. The next piece, once you get that kind of, if you like, executional edge, how do we stay ahead of execution is the transformation part of it, which is, if you like, more of a strategy side. And that's learning about where we need to be. So if you told me two years ago, we'd be working with Deliveroo and Uber directly, I mm. wouldn't, I'd be like, what are you talking about? And you look at it now and it's one of the most important levers. You've now got the metaverse. Mm. So... I own it physically. Can I own, own it in a meta environment? Like things like intimacy with Jurex. I, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. So you do the first thing. You start Googling NFT. You start buy it. You buy a little bit. You go onto the platform. Can I just advise our listener not to start Googling Durex in the metaverse while at work? Just saying. Unless you work for Reckon and it seemed totally, totally viable. But yeah, so you learn that way. But moreover, and this is the important point, I think, there's a humility as well. There's so much to learn from the existing mm. business. And there's so many leadership lessons that are equal. And the digital world has changed things a lot. But if you actually look at the leadership, leadership you can learn and how to run scale business, Amazon is a scale retailer now. So it is incredibly important we're learning from the likes of Tesco and those, those teams and also from our marketeers because suddenly your decisions aren't a thousand pounds a week anymore. Mm. They're a hundred million a year. So if you, again, if you're not doing the right rigor and process. Now, whether that's me doing it or whether I've employed people to do it, to cover that, and I've moved on, that's just a personal yeah. kind of thing about where I, you know, what's the right place for me. But I learned very quickly that you need to have that appreciation of both. And there's this incredible historical value we've built and so many assets. And then it's just how do you make that work the hardest? So whether that's for us with our brands or for retailers, the store is so important now. I mean, I literally just walked past the Gymshark store. Can you believe Gymshark mm. store and yeah. in Oxford Street? And ironically, having a store is the best thing you can have now, but you have to sweat that asset in a different way and to have different good brands. Exactly. And, and that's the irony. It's going full circle where you're watching Boohoo open their store with Debenhams.com Beauty. So therefore, all these things are incredibly important. Store operations for an econ professional like me, I now need to go and relearn that. So is that a career route do i go and do something do i i don't go and study or do i try and find that experience mm. that's where it's important and that humility with ecom is incredibly important because sometimes it comes across as like a certain amount of arrogance i guess that you're in the growth area you know things i don't when it's not it's just a leadership journey and that's what we spend a lot of t our time teaching our e-commerce leaders like go and learn go and work mm. in these store environments for two years come back reapply and vice versa and bringing people in and out and developing our talent that way it sounds like to me and this is probably a lesson which we all know in life is complacency is not a great thing but particularly when you've got big brands like you have in your business the danger is that you could become a bit complacent just because they're so strong but everything you just described says to me that complacency is probably the worst thing you could ever do would that be fair to say yeah if the consumer has the power the brand doesn't by definition so brand and retailers have power now consumers have the power so you need to respect that and if your product isn't up to grade whether it's sustainability product efficacy packaging mm. can't tell you the amount of times like we get called up on packaging because it's packed for in-store not packed for online and people mm. receive it mm. and we're very much a company that's gone through the stage of let's just buy better ratings and reviews to now what's going on with this? Let's have a listening board and actually change these things and then finding out how we improve it. So you have to be like that, I think, because you can't ignore the examples that we've seen. And healthcare is maybe 
has higher barriers to entry. But if you take the Harry's Razors example, mm-hmm. no one would have thought Gillette would have lost that market segment share mm-hmm. by basically someone coming in and taking, if you like, whether you call it complacency or just a loss of edge and just saying, I can do it slightly differently. And then also getting around this idea that the valuation of things is now different. So mm. we were we were saying in the office the other day, we were asked a question around Morrison's have just been sold for just under 8 billion. And that's the valuation of Get It. <laughs> and 99% of people in our business haven't used Get It. Yeah. And Get It are one of many quick commerce. And you're like, wow, like it has changed. And again, it's like that recognize, I, I guess how you derive value has changed. And we have to be equally open to that as brands. So the brands have a huge amount of power and have to evolve. And we've survived 150 years evolving on most of our brands now. So there's a very strong argument to say we'll continue to evolve, mm. but that evolution is now probably sped up slightly because it's changed so much. And thanks to Amazon, Alibaba, even like Google, TikTok, right? They're all in shopping now. And all, all these brands that are now case studies, when in the past we had Ben, when I was growing up, we had Ben and Jerry's, that was it. Mm. <laughs> that was the only example. <laughs> and now every industry, you know, I get pinged every day saying, hey, this insurgent brand, mm. they're, they've, you know, I don't know, reached a conversion share of 5% on a keyword that we're number one on, they do content way better than us. Like, yeah. like, can, what are they doing? And we're like, whoa, and maybe we can, you know, we can adapt to that. Maybe they've just taught us something. And that needs to be, if you like, the if you like the humility that comes with it. Wow. And that, I, but I don't think that's any different, the complacency. I don't think that's changed, really. It's just a different environment. 20 years ago, it was the same thing for us. You know, like Fairy came into dishwasher tablets, right? It means nothing to you guys. For us, it was a momentous equation, you know, and that suddenly finish our Fairy. And you have to then stay ahead. So that's why, you know, you see this a lot. It's just now way more open. It's just hard. To, it's hard to see all the challenges, whereas before it was pretty obvious who, yeah. where the challenge was. Yeah. Oh, look, it's a new tablet. You know, right, let's do something about it. Yeah, or the retailer tells yeah. you. We've yeah. got Proctor <laughs> entering your category. Here's what it's worth versus now where it's like, oh my God, what just happened? And mm. it's like my conversion shares dropped 20% in a week and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's brand A that's yeah. like jetted in from, you know, Europe and got European fulfillment mm. and and suddenly has a brand proposition that we don't have or worked out. And because consumers are very open because we have the data, if you can read the data better and adapt, you can you can pick products yeah. quite quickly, yeah. which is, I guess, the insurgent brand model. So it's a bit like the uh, Jason Bourne thing where before you just walk in and see there's dangers now, you know, you remember all of the car registrations and mm. various you know, signs others don't see. Greg, thank you very much. The thing I'm taking from this, apart from you know, all the interesting stuff I hadn't realised. But the one thread going through this is just this listening Mm. and being alive to new sources of information and then the willingness to change your behaviour based upon that new information. I think that's my real takeaway from this. Well, look, I think you need to come back and have a chat with us next year because I'm excited to see, you know, what happens as hopefully business gets back to a new normal. But for now, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Thank you, everyone, for listening. So for me, Jamie, Greg, uh, it's a goodbye and happy trading. Well that was great. That was really good. Happy? That, yeah. yeah, very good happy. Way. That was brilliant. Absolutely the, brilliant. The, the Jedi and student master <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't go that far. But, uh, I, was, I wasn't calling you Jedi for that reason. Well, just because you're old. <laughs> Got Yoda over here. You're old and you wear a big exactly. brown hemp. Yeah, exactly. Hemp jacket. Exactly, exactly. Should we want to have lunch? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs>